Hey, everybody, this is Steve Gamlin, the motivational firewood guy, and you are listening and enjoying the Shadows Podcast. The Lima Charlie Network is a group of thought leaders and podcasters with the goals of improving ourselves, inspiring and educating others, and bringing viable conversations to both military and civilian audiences. Our vision is to empower others to reach new heights in leadership. Self-development and communication by connecting our audience to crucial conversations. Focused on sharing tools, ideas, and perspectives for impactful improvement. A one-stop shop for aspiring and seasoned leaders alike to gain from the experiences and knowledge of others. We aren't just a network of colleagues, we are family. And we invite you to come and join us on this journey. And we look forward to delivering invaluable information to you loud and clear. Hey, Shadows listeners. If you're looking to make some extra income that also impacts people, then you need to look at becoming a certified leadership coach with Giant. If you don't already know, Giant has been in the leadership space for over 13 years. I got certified through Giant in 2018 and I've been teaching ever since. Just to give you some context, they used to own and operate the John Maxwell brands. They ran the LeaderCast conferences where Jim Collins, Henry Cloud, Malcolm Gladwell, and Simon Sinek, just to name a few, were regular speakers. They have over 500 coaches worldwide working in over 127 countries and are being hired by companies like Google, Chick-fil-A, Pfizer, Delta, and more. And yes, you can do this too. I know this might sound intimidating, but Giant will literally give you everything you need to start your own coaching business from scratch. You get hands-on training from top-level coaches to learn the exact methodology and tools that six-figure coaches are using. You get an all-in-one online platform to run your entire coaching business, even if you want to work 100% remotely. And you'll get to join a thriving community of coaches from all around the world. To get started, Giant is hosting a coaching business workshop to help you learn the ins and outs of how to build a successful coaching business. This is both for experienced coaches, consultants, and those who are looking to start coaching and consulting with little to no experience. If you want to hear the really good news, this whole workshop, it's free, 100% free. And you can reserve your spot by going to giant.tv forward slash shadows. Why not give it a shot? What's better than making a positive change in people's lives and making some extra money in the process? Giant launches a new hiring cohort every month. Now, they only have 20 coaching slots available each month. So it's first come, first serve. So go ahead and make sure you reserve your spot. If you're ready to make an impact and get paid doing it, go to giant.tv forward slash shadows, giant.tv forward slash shadows. All right, I want to welcome everybody to another episode of the Shadows Podcast. I'm your host, Trip Odenheimer, and I'm excited this week to be joined by Art Bell. He is a former TV executive, founded Comedy Channel, later to be known as Comedy Central. He continued his television career as president of Court TV, and then his memoir, Constant Comedy, How I Started Comedy Central and Lost My Sense of Humor. We're going to unpack all of that here on this episode. Sir, welcome to the Shadows Podcast. Thanks, Trip. Great to be here. And where are you located at right now? I am sitting here in Park City, Utah. Oh, Utah. I bet it's really nice. It's beautiful. Right it's beautiful. We're in the middle of a kind of a snowstorm, but uh, that means the skiing is going to be great tomorrow. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm currently in Montgomery, Alabama. and No skiing. About... Skiing is terrible there. Skiing is <laughs> it's not ski season right now. We're 12 months away from it. Well, before we get started, I want to go ahead and um, do some five rounds presented by our sponsor giant worldwide uh i want to first ask you favorite comedian of all time 
Richard Pryor. Richard Pryor. That's a good one. I, someone asked me that the other day, and the first one that came to my mind was Andy Kaufman. Oh, yeah. So you got a little bit of an offbeat sense of humor, huh? Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> Very, I don't know what that says about me, but yes. Um, no, he was great. He was. Biggest fear. Dying. Dying. Okay. <laughs> I, that I know. I know that. That's right up there with everybody's biggest fear. You know, it's got to be in your top three. Yeah. Uh, that public speaking or, or, or in most people's top two. Is that right? Public speaking? I love public speaking. Yeah, I actually believe it was Jerry Seinfeld who said more people would uh, feel comfortable um, in the casket than reading the eulogy. (laughs) Wrong for me. (laughs) (laughs) All right. What is a uh, guilty pleasure of yours? Uh, Guilty pleasure. I I don't consider any of my pleasures all that guilty. I'm thinking uh, there must be something, right? Um, I play drums. <laughs> we'll go with that. that living wild. Well, it's a guilty pleasure because it makes a lot of noise, and then you know, I have to feel bad about it. <laughs> Especially if you're doing it like two in the morning. Yeah, really, really. So you know, for a while, I had the drum set in the basement, and uh, thinking nobody'd hear me down there. Yeah. And when I first started playing, my, my wife said, would you knock it off? <laughs> so uh, we, we've worked it out, though. I, I got I built a little studio. It's like the commercial with uh, Animal from Muppets, where he's playing the drums in the, the attic. Don't you love that guy? Yeah. Yeah. Animal, a great character, man. Yeah, he is. And and I, I, I came to drums late. I've only been playing for like 10 or 12 years, and I'm not all that good, but I play jazz. But anyway, I always thought of Animal as being created and voiced by somebody who really knew drummers because I played piano, too. And whenever I was playing with a drummer, the drummer seemed kind of spacey. You know, the drummer was always like, you know, just doing this, no matter what you were doing. Yeah. Like you're trying to explain where you're going or, or what song you're doing. The drummer's like, yeah. And you go, hey. And you go, yeah, what? I'm ready. Yeah, go. <laughs> you know? And then just take off like Animal. An animal is just like incoherent. Yeah. <laughs> Couldn't understand what he said. Yeah. It's perfect. Perfect. This, this one, I'm going to be interested to see what you say. How, what are we up to, by the way? It seems like 12. This, this is our fourth. This is our fourth. <laughs> oh, We've sidebarred a little bit on a couple of them. Okay. This one here. Um, I could go easy and just say top three comedy films, top three most underrated comedy films. Boy, that's a complex question. Yeah. Uh, for so many reasons. Hmm. Uh, well, <clears throat> I think if you consider Catch-22, the film, mm-hmm. as a comedy, it's a black comedy. I think that's been underrated as a comedy. I'm surprised I got to one. Let me think. I mean, you tend to think of your favorite your favorite comedies and most of my favorite comedies are, are highly rated. Um, hmm. I like some of the, the like Harlem nights, golden child, one of like the Eddie Murphy's that aren't as notable as like uh, coming to America. Life yeah. But they're underrated for a reason. Yeah. I think. Um, let's see. Uh, that's, that's the one that comes to mind. We'll go with one. That was your one. Yeah, that was my. That was the one I. Yeah, that was definitely the one that I would say was underrated because it was a great book, very funny book, and a very powerful book and a very funny movie. Then right. our forty-second question here: yeah. um, You have two plane tickets. One, you can go back to somewhere that you've been before, and two, you can use your other ticket for somewhere you've never been. That's on your bucket list. Where do you go? Well. I would go to Little Cayman Islands and go scuba diving again there. It was just spectacular. Yeah. And uh, very kind of remote. Not a lot of people there. I couldn't believe what I was seeing. Yeah. Um, and, and the other place where I never went. Mm-hmm. Hmm, that's a good one. Because we've been to a lot of places. Uh, I would say... I would like to go to Yosemite National Park. Really? You've never been there? 
I have been to lots of national parks. I love national parks. For some reason, Yosemite just has not made the list yet. Not not that we don't want to go or I don't want to go. It's just that, you know, you go to the ones you're near, you're planning, whatever. And the thing with Yosemite, in the summertime when you're usually going, that's a place that's supposed to be like Grand Central Station. Like you can't move. There's a zillion people there, you know. So we kind of avoided it. But now that I'm not working, uh, I'm retired. I think we're going to hit Yosemite pretty quickly. Oh, nice. Nice. Okay. Well, you survived the five rounds. And now we're going to start to chronicle your journey a little bit. So uh, if you don't mind, tell our listeners about your upbringings. Where'd you grow up? It was uh, Jersey Shore, right? I grew up in the Jersey Shore. Yeah. Not far from where Bruce Springsteen was the local bar band uh, Mm -hmm. when I was growing up, actually. Uh, And uh, being that close to the Jersey Shore, being that close, you know, we were about 10 miles away from the actual ocean. Yeah. Um, was the greatest way to grow up, I can imagine, because I used to just get up and when I was like, you know, between the ages of 10 and 15, ride my bike to the beach every day. That's what I did. I mean, I worked a little bit, but that was a great experience, just hanging out at the beach with my friends. And then, you know, in those days, in those days, it was a great place to grow up. You know, you go to Jersey now, it's crowded. I mean, there's a billion people there. Mm-hmm. In those days, it wasn't so crowded. You know, you didn't feel like you were you were being, you know, you were among a zillion people. So it was just a terrific place to grow up. Lots of different kinds of people, you know, all different religions, colors. Our, our high school was, was a 40% African-American, 30% white. The rest was uh, Hispanic, basically. And uh, we had a great time together. You know, it was just, I'm one of those guys who's, who looks back on his high school career where most people are saying, Oh man, that was a disaster. Yeah. I guess some of it was a disaster, but some of it was fun. Some of it was really interesting. And uh, yeah, I had a good time growing up. I will tell you this. I will tell you this. You can't tell looking at me now, but I, I grew up very short. I was short for my age. And so I could never play organized sports. Not that there were that many in those days. You had little league and I guess pop Warner football and stuff, but all my friends played, you know, cause I was friends with all those guys. They always let me play with them on pickup games and pickup games were all the time. Mm-hmm. Basketball. I played with the basketball guy, the team guys in pickup games. And I, I had an outside shot. That was about it. But you know, they always let me play. And I really regret that, those kind of pickup games where people, you know, everybody gets to play. They don't happen anymore. I played football with the football players. I got to be a very fast runner because I hated getting tackled. And, and, (laughs) but that's one of the reasons I thought my childhood was cool because I had friends who were very supportive and very, um, and very good to me. Yeah. I was telling someone the other day, I was like, it's it's weird how my childhood is so much different than my daughter's. Like I, I would go outside and play all day and I felt like I traveled three cities over and we get hit by a car and bit by a raccoon and my daughter gets a mosquito bite. And I'm like, don't go outside anymore. Um, It's unbelievable. unbelievable, The difference. It really is. It really, really is. So how were you in high school? Did, were you the kind of the cut up the class? I was funny. I was a funny guy. I mean, as I said, I grew up short and um, you know, I I learned early on, I actually started liking comedy when I was about eight years old, Mm -hmm. which had nothing to do with anything other than the fact that I, I was around funny people. I mean, my dad was pretty funny, I thought. And, uh, you know, my uncles, my brothers, everybody seemed to have a good time laughing. My youngest brother, you know, remember when I was eight, he was about four, three, four. He was hysterically funny. He made yeah. me laugh all the time. And then now he does, he's grown, obviously, and he has a job, but he's done improv for the, in New York City for the last 20 years. Very oh, wow. funny guy. But so you can just see that I was just, I just thought comedy was part of life. Then I started watching the Ed Sullivan show, which was a variety show every Sunday. And they had comedians on. Mm-hmm. Um, first, first time I saw Richard Pryor, I mentioned Richard already. First time I saw him was on his first appearance on the Ed Sullivan show. He was like 20 years old. Yeah. He had this black suit on and a skinny black tie. And he was like, you know, he looked like that. And he told a story about getting beat up on the playground in Peoria, Illinois. Hysterically funny. And 
of course I related because I'd been beat up on the playground as everybody has once or once or twice. Right. And I marveled at the fact that he had not only the entire audience laughing, but I was laughing. My dad was laughing and my brothers were laughing and there were probably 20 million people in television land laughing at the same time. I said, man, that is the most powerful thing I have ever seen to elicit that kind of emotion among that many people. I'm not sure I was saying exactly that way at eight years old, Mm -hmm. but that's what attracted me first. Second thing that attracted me, I guess it's a good way to get attention, you know? And as I said, um, I wasn't an athlete, so I had to rely on something else. And I was smart, which wasn't, you know, I was good in school, which wasn't really a, a big calling card <laughs> as it's not, you know. So I found out that if, if I was funny, then people would pay attention to me. So yeah, I was a little bit of a cut up in, in grade school and and a little less in high school. But in high school, I started an underground newspaper called The Tongue, which was a satirical newspaper and i started writing funny stuff i loved it yeah, you wrote about like teachers and classmates oh yeah yeah and the school administration we, <laughs> we got in so much trouble but i i will say this we did some good writing it was me and my friends we did some yeah. good writing and we got in a little bit of trouble but the teachers would all come up to us and say i know you're in a little bit of trouble for this but it was great you know? So <laughs> it was, you know it was really a positive experience with comedy i did a little performing in high school a little more in college not stand up so much sketch some other stuff um i was in play up uh, i was in a musical comedy well it's, i guess it's a musical in college i got to sing which i had never done before like dancing is still terrible but you know i guess the reason i'm telling you that is because I, i'm not really i like to perform a little bit but i wasn't really that much of a performer at heart you know, some of my friends really, they did stand up. They love to get up there. But then when I was in college, somebody said, Hey, why don't you audition for this play we're putting on, you know, this musical? And I said, and they said, well, we've seen you do some sketch comedy and we think you'd be good. And everything. I said, I can't sing. And they said, we'll teach you how to sing. And it was one of the great experiences of my life singing with, I had to do a solo with an orchestra, you know, wow. it was like a real orchestra. And, um, and the reason I tell that story is because it's one of the things I like about myself. I let myself get dragged into things, you know, or talked into things that I wouldn't normally gravitate to. Yeah. Um, And I think that's how I ended up in working in comedy because getting working in comedy was a tough, that was a tough place to break into. I bet. And I was, um, you know, talking about comedy and talking about humor. We were talking before we hit record about uh, how much we stress it. Uh, the schoolhouse where I teach, we talk about one of the 10 steps of being a successful teacher is you got to have humor. And Steve Gamlin, who was actually one of the guests on the show, he does stand up comedy. He had sent me something earlier today. I told him I was going to be talking to you. And he said, um, one day a gentleman walked up to him in a grocery store. He said he was checking out some Captain Crunch, trying to figure out which one he wanted. Someone walked up to him and they said, you're that speaker from such and such, right? And he's like, yeah. And the, the guy shared a story that he told that day. He showed him a, he talked about a picture that he had on the screen. He talked about the lesson that he taught and all of this happened three years prior. And he was stunned. He's like, wow, this guy remembers that. And he said, the only reason he remembered that was because of his humor that he brought to that lesson. The oh, yeah. concepts were able to stick because of the humor. Yep. Um, very underrated. And it's, you know, in the military, you know, for the longest time, I remember going to trainings and it was just by the book you know, black and white, but um, yeah, we're starting to get, especially with our course to teach that bring some humor to stuff, bring some comedy, be yourself, have fun. Uh, Cause nobody else is going to be doing it. If you're not, Well, I think that's very smart. I yeah. That's and very wise. you, um, you, the interesting part about your story is you didn't jump straight in to comedy central. You went to CBS after college, right? Uh, it's, it's more ridiculous than that. After college, I became an economist. I, when I went to college, I was fascinated with economics. Okay. And mind you, I had friends who said, Hey, we're going, you know, we did all this comedy sketch work together and performing. And they said, Hey, we're going to LA. We're going to be writers. Why don't you come along? And I said, you're never going to make it as a writer. <laughs> Where were you at when this happened? I was at, I went to Swarthmore college, which is outside of Philadelphia. Okay. And 
I just didn't believe it was possible that you could make a living as a writer, a comedy writer. Mm -hmm. uh, because my parents had told me when I was growing up, you know, look, doctor, lawyer, accountant, something like that. Even if you don't do that, do it. So you'd have something to fall back on. Mm -hmm. And I, I didn't really want to go to Hollywood, to be honest. I loved economics. Uh, I failed my first economics test. That's how <laughs> I was a freshman. I was the first test I took in college. I got a 17. And 17, thought, not 17. 17 out of 100. <laughs> <laughs> and I just looked at it. I, you know, I was, I was pretty good in high school. I said, you know, I, I really need a new approach here. <laughs> Something's gone wrong. And I started working really hard on economics and suddenly I loved it. I found it was really fun. So I graduated and I was hired by a consulting firm as an economist in Washington, D.C., worked with really smart people. I mean, really smart people on very hairy projects for the some for the military, for the DOE, Department of Energy, for EPA, for some private guys. That was the smartest period of my life. I think I was 25 years old. It was downhill from there for me. But no, I got nowhere near comedy until then. Uh, I, I thought I was going to just go to economic grad school, be a professor, the whole nine yards. Then I decided a couple of years into being an economist, I, I didn't want to do that. Mm -hmm. And I thought hard about what I wanted to do. And I said, you know what, I'm going to go back to business school. Maybe I'll get into film and television. So I went back to business school and I said, where do people like me, you know, who like the arts and like music and comedy and performing and stuff, where do they, you got courses on that? They said, no, we don't do that. They said, but the students put on an annual musical comedy review called The Follies. And it's about, you know, grad school here. And why don't you go check that out? So I did. And lo and behold, there were professionals. Like there was this choreographer who had been on choreographer on Broadway and she wanted out of the business. <laughs> so she came to business school so she could go yeah. to Wall Street, and make a lot of money. I was sort of going in the opposite direction. Um, but my point is, there were very talented people working on this thing. It was called the, the Wharton Follies. And the second year, I wrote the whole thing. Well, I was the head writer. I didn't write yeah. every word. I was the head writer. And it reminded me how much I loved comedy and how much I loved writing comedy. And I thought, now, why isn't there a comedy network? Why isn't there a comedy channel? There's MTV, there's ESPN, which in those days was showing like, you know, girls lacrosse games, the weather uh, channels. girls high school lacrosse games, bowling, whatever they could find. You yeah. know? Um, but there was no comedy network. I said, that's just, that's crazy. Cause that's where I would want to work, but I didn't, couldn't get a job there because there wasn't one. So I went to CBS, my first job out of school. It was like working at the post office, a giant place. I was nowhere near programming or the product, you know? Yeah. I, I would talk to people about my idea for Comedy Channel, and they'd say, yeah, we need that financial report by, you know, three o'clock, so get back to that. <laughs> and, and that's what I did. Luckily, a friend called me up. He had gone to HBO. Now, HBO in those days was like Netflix. It was like the new happening, coolest place to be in television, you know? Yeah. It was going to. They were going to change the way people watch television. They were putting on one hour uncut comedy specials. They were doing, they were putting on movies, of course. Like Tracy Allman. Oh yeah. They yeah. did great stuff. They were doing really wonderful stuff. And, you know, CBS probably had 20,000 employees. HBO had 800. I said, okay, now this, now we're talking, right? Yeah. And the guy says, this guy who called me up, he says, they're looking for someone to do economic modeling so that they could forecast subscribers. And he said, you're the only guy I know in the whole business who knows anything about that. So I went and interviewed, got the job and did that at HBO for the first couple of years. And mind you, that was like the last thing I wanted to do in the television business mm -hmm. was the same thing I'd been doing as an economist. But I point that out because it just shows that whatever your job was, whatever your job is, it'll lead you to your next job potentially. And you're going to use that stuff in your next job. Yep. And I'm talking, even if you're like, you know, you're working at Starbucks, whatever, whatever you're learning there, and you may not even realize what you're learning there. Somebody in someone is going to value that enough to say, okay, we want you to do that here like this. And you can move closer to your, you know, what you want to do for me, it was, it was television and being part of the programming. Uh, and, and that was my shot. Yeah. It, 
ego a lot of times people get it they look at the job and they're like i don't want that because that's not my ultimate goal of where i want to be but i've always been told yeah you work at burger king or whataburger you're trying to get here you're going to learn something from your experience at burger right. king that's going to right. make you, you can better average, yep right completely unexpected that's how i got into hbo and, and uh, talk to us about the pitch you made about uh what ended up being comedy central yeah so i I've been thinking by this point a long time about what a comedy network would look like and cable channels are being started all over the place, arts and entertainment, A&E, you know, all this stuff. So I said, there's gotta be a comedy network. And so by then I had sketched it out. I'd done some financial thinking about it because everybody said, well, it's expensive. So I said, you know what? I'm going to go pitch the head of HBO programming. Her name was Bridget. Uh, and now Bridget was at the very top of the organizational chart. I was at pretty much the very bottom of the organizational chart, right? I was, <laughs> and I had nothing to do with comedy or programming or anything, right? But small company, she said, yeah, sure. You want to talk to me? Come talk to me. So I go in and, you know, Bridget was considered some kind of a programming genius. You know, she was kind of like, you know, really eccentric and bombastic. And she'd made HBO a success. Like I was scared to death, right? So I sat down, I said, Bridget, I really think HBO should do a 24-hour, seven-day-a-week, all-comedy channel. She said, stop right there. That'll never work. Let me tell you why. And she spent the next 15 minutes talking about why it would never work. Gave me reason after reason. Too expensive. Why would HBO risk its reputation? Some crazy ones like, there are no... what." What great comedian, what A-level a comedian would want to be on an all-comedy all channel? She said Robin Williams would never be on an all-comedy channel. Whoopi, never. You know, she goes through the whole list. Billy Crystal, he'd never be on an all-comedy channel. Their managers would die before they let them on. I'm like, okay, you know, I don't know. So she pretty much uh, ended it by saying, all right, all right, you're new here. Uh, thanks for coming down. You obviously don't know much about television. Uh but um, see you around. So I left. I walked out. And let me tell you, that was like a big truckload of ice water being thrown on me and my yeah. idea. But I realized almost immediately she was wrong. Somebody was going to start a comedy network. And if it wasn't going to be us, it would be somebody else. So I went back to my office and I didn't have that much to do those days because the project I'd been working on kind of failed. Um, not because of me. But anyway, it was... <laughs> So I was kind of like between projects. So I wrote up the whole thing for a comedy channel and figured I'd send it to all the entertainment companies in New York and LA, you know, Warner Brothers, and ABC, Fox, anybody was interested, see if they liked it and get a new job because I had no career at that point. I was just a kid. Right. As luck would have it, my boss's boss walked by. I said, what are you working on? I showed him. He says, the chairman of HBO should see this. I said, wow, great. That's terrific. He says, come on, let's go. And I said, what, right now? He said, yeah, we're going right now. He's a friend of mine. We'll walk in and we'll, you'll tell him about the channel. I, I had no presentation. No spiel, this. no PowerPoint I had slide. no <laughs> idea what I was going to say to him. I had, it was nothing. This was about a few weeks after I'd spoken to Bridget. Um, but I went in. Michael Fuchs was the chairman. He had just been declared the most powerful man in Hollywood by the New York Times. So uh, just, just to point out that if I got in the elevator with Michael Fuchs accidentally, I would break into a cold sweat because, you know, this guy he could snap his fingers and he didn't work in the business again. Yeah. Um, anyway, I went, what could I do? I pitched my little heart out, a lot of passion, you know, because yeah. I'd been thinking about it for a long time. I think that's what sold it. And vision. I, I said, you know, Michael, if, if this thing works, we're going to be the center of the comedy universe. You want to let somebody else do that? We got to do that. And he said, yeah, you're right. So that's, that's, I think what sold it, the vision and the passion. And uh, it didn't, you know, we didn't start it right away. So do some research, do a test tape. Yeah. He teamed me up with the head of HBO comedy programming, mm. a guy named Stu Smiley. I kid you not. His name was Stu Smiley. And he was, he'd been in the comedy business for 10 years. The first thing he said to me when he met me was, what do you know about comedy? And I said, yeah, I like it. 
<laughs> and and Stu, you know, he knew all the comedians. He knew their managers. He knew their home numbers. He knew what they made. He knew how to get them on television. I didn't know anything about the comedy business. Suddenly, it's him and me. And he used to say, hey, there he is, the guy with the big idea. Because, you know, I pitched the channel and everybody yeah. bought it. Amazingly, they gave me a job at the channel. Yeah. You know, to me, that was like, wow, really? I get a job there, too? That's perfect. That's just what I wanted. But it wasn't guaranteed, right? wasn't yeah. guaranteed i didn't know anything about it and it took me a while to learn about comedy how was it your first interaction with bridget after that oh um good actually she uh she was she didn't actually say oh you know i know i said this was a dumb idea but i guess it's not but she was very um she was um, she embraced me yeah. She invited me to like the first programming outing. Remember, I didn't know any of these people. I was working in finance. Yeah. Um, so no complaints. I, and, you know, I, I'm, I, I tell that story about Bridget, like she's an idiot. She's not an idiot. Of course she's not. But, um, and remember at that point, everybody thought the comedy network was a bad idea. So uh, yeah. So that, what, that's a, what were some of the hurdles that you had to go through? Cause you all ended up launching November 15th, 1989. So what were looking back, some of the biggest obstacles you had to overcome to get the comedy channel to launch? Well, I'll tell you one you probably wouldn't think of because I pitched it. And even though I didn't know much about comedy, I suddenly found myself in programming in, on a comedy network, working with comedy professionals and a, I was scared to death. Mm -hmm. B, I couldn't show it because that's not the way it works. Yeah. And C, I felt responsible for the whole thing. I felt the whole thing was on me, mm. even though there were a couple hundred people working on it then. So you want to talk about an obstacle. I, I never before or since took a job that personally, yeah. you know, where it was, I had to make it work come hell or high water yeah. because all eyes were on me. And when we launched, it was a disaster. How's that for a hurdle? The, the critics savaged it. They said, it's not funny. The heck is HBO doing? What is Michael Fuchs, the most powerful man in Hollywood? He's falling flat on his face. I think it was a little payback time for Michael because he was, you know, he was kind of a, you know, he was a cocky guy. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and so the, the press had a great time trashing us. And in fact... You know, it was day one. It was the first week. It was the first month. I mean, how could we how could we have possibly been brilliantly funny immediately? It yeah. just doesn't happen, right? And that's one of the reasons I wrote the book is because I wanted people who love, you know, they watch Comedy Central today say, man, started a long time ago. Must have been brilliantly successful from the get-go. False. I went to work every day for the first year thinking, okay, they're going to shut us down today. Today's the day they're going to tell me I'm out of a job. They're shutting us down. Didn't work. We're losing money. And the subtitle of my book, um, how I started Comedy Central and lost my sense of humor. I wanted to convey how hard it was, but also that came from Michael, the chairman of Phone HBO. Call, right? No, no. He called me in. This was early on. He called me in. And he said, you know, Art, it took a comedy channel to make me lose my sense of humor because he was embarrassed. Yeah. He was humiliated. That's how bad things were going. And I had to, you know, I just felt it was my responsibility to fix. What do you think it was that helped pull the nose up and make it <laughs> successful? Especially those early stages. You got, you got to realize that there was a lot of talent involved with the channel. I mean, yeah. You know, some of this talent went on to great things. I mean, Gil, Gil Ron uh, worked there, was her first job in television, and she became ultimately the head of Paramount Pictures mm. and uh, Fox Broadcasting. So, you know, these were very talented people, but it was early in their career. The Higgins Boys and Gruber was one of the sketch groups we, we work with, and and uh, Steve Higgins was a head writer. He became the head writer at, Com at uh, Saturday Night Live for years. He mm -hmm. might still be. I, I'm not sure. But, you know, so all these people were young, excited, creative, talented beyond belief. And suddenly they got a comedy channel to play with. And I think that was a big deal. I mean, 
let me tell you the story of MST three thousand Mystery Science Theater three thousand. Yeah. One of the one of my contentions when I when I thought about the channel was, if we were really good, if we got good, then great comedy would find us. We we wouldn't have to go looking for it. And even before we launched, we got a um, an envelope in the mail, and we opened the envelope and it was a tape, and we put it in, and it was MST three thousand. They had been producing it for fun in Minneapolis at this like stupid little TV station. And the note with it said, hey, we hear you guys are doing a comedy channel. Is this something you might be interested in? Perfect. That's, that's when I knew, come hell or high water, we were going to be successful. Yeah. Because where was MST 3000 going to go in the world of television if it weren't for us? Mm-hmm. No, NBC, HPN, nobody would put that on. We put that on. And, uh, and it was actually, it was, you know, a big anchor for the channel early on. Yeah. I showed you before we came on here, I actually took a photo of them at the puppet museum in Atlanta, um, this past week. And that's, you know, what, 30 years after the, the launch, um, right. 30 last year was the 30th year anniversary. Yeah. And and people still talk about impressive. It. Pretty impressive. Um, yeah. I love those guys too. Very funny. How did you manage to land uh, SNL reruns? Because that was a big thing too in the early stages. Yeah, that that was a big thing. Um, SNL reruns weren't shown in those days. You know, that was right. the, what, what happened is they put it on live and then they tape it and then the tapes would they sometimes rerun them in the summertime. But mostly mm-hmm. they went into the NBC basement. Um, actually, it was uh, Lauren Michaels' basement. <laughs> he owned them. Um, He's a producer. And we got the idea to put the reruns on, you know, get the Saturday Night Live library and put them on TV. So we called over to uh, Lauren and he said, well, that sounds like a pretty good idea. Um, How much are you willing to pay? And we started talking about it. At that time, I didn't mention this, but we got competition. MTV launched their own comedy network after Ah. six months after we launched. Ha, right. So naturally we called Lauren 20 minutes later, they called Lauren because they heard we called Lauren. I, I, and you know what? I say that. I don't even remember what the comedy is. wars, <laughs> that comedy wars were really going. We were fighting yeah. over everything. So Saturday night live was one of the things we fought over. They outbid us by like 10 to one. It wasn't even close. You know, oh, wow. <laughs> I just remember saying, wow, they paid a lot of money for that, but they could because they had all these other channels. And if how went down, they just put on one of the other channels. Yeah. We couldn't do that. So as luck would have it, at the end of six months after they launched, I got a call saying, uh, listen, here's the news. We're merging Ha and the Comedy Channel because neither of them is really getting any footing. We're killing each other. We're fighting for audience and advertisers. Both of us are losing money. We're going to just merge them. And I was crestfallen. I was really, I mean, talk about a bad day. That was a bad day, partly because I thought maybe I'd lose my job, but partly because I thought we were the better channel. You know, you're in there, you're in the trenches, you're fighting the war. Those are the bad guys. They're doing it all wrong. We're doing it all right. But um, as it turned out, I didn't lose my job. They fired a lot of people, um, but they said, you and the head of programming from Ha are going to get together. You're going to decide what programming is going to go on this new channel. You got to figure out what to call it and you can't call it comedy channel or ha. So you got to find a new name and you got to relaunch the thing. And that's what we did. And you know what? I will say this. As soon as we got together and we pulled some of our staffs together, you know, we realized we were all in for the same thing. We wanted a comedy network in the world. We didn't fight each other. We said, okay, what are we going to do? How are we going to make this thing successful? I think the people the, the corporate people who merged us, you know, at the very, very top, the chairman of the of Viacom, the chairman of it. I think the heavy betting was we weren't going to make it a year, mm-hmm. the merged channel, because mergers don't work too well often. Yeah. You know that. Yeah. But we were hell bent on making sure it worked and it did. And we got through the first year then the second then the third. Then we started getting some traction and some shows and and noticed and, and the rest is history. I left after eight years. So, so did you leave right when South Park was about? Right to... around that time. South Park yeah. came in, Daily Show was being done. And then they brought new, ma- that, not then, at the same time, they brought new management in. 
and the new management was from H MTV. All the HBO guys like me uh, were let go. So how does that feel, you know, sitting here in 2022, looking back, knowing, you know, Comedy Central's still out there. People are still watching it. They're still tuning into it. I've been a huge fan, fan of it as long as I can remember. How does that feel looking back and knowing like that is that is you, that is your brainchild, that is your idea, uh, you know, that. Well, it's it's a great feeling. It's great to look in the rearview mirror and see something like that still standing. And, yeah. uh, and I'm very proud of it. I will say that, you know, I don't attribute it all to me. As I say, and I, I call the book, you know, how I started comedy, Comedy Central. I didn't make it. I was part of the team, mm -hmm. you know, a million people piled on, rightfully so, and said, okay, we're going to make some great comedy here. It wasn't just me, right? but I did kick it off. I did kick it off. And I feel very proud of that um, because it did start it was the start of a great undertaking and it launched a lot of comedy careers, a lot of business careers. Uh, it was, you know, and it employed a lot of people over the years, which makes me feel good. And, and talk to us about court TV. How did you oh, see, get into the, interesting. Yeah. <laughs> How'd you go from uh, comedy central to court TV president of court TV? Right. Yeah. Right. Well, you know, people ask me that um, I have the ability to get interested in like almost anything at least yeah. for a minute, you know, things fascinated me, especially things about business. Um, so when I was looking around for my next job, I did some consulting for a while. And then I got a call that they wanted somebody for court TV. Right. Mm -hmm. And I knew court TV is a failed channel. I mean, that thing was like circling the drain, you know, Yeah. very few subscribers. They were showing daytime courtroom trials. That was it. No prime time at all. Prime times where you make the money. It was started by a magazine guy. He didn't care about television he just wanted to show courtroom trials so they fired him they pulled in new management me among them and uh in the same way i had to get accepted into the club of comedy you know when i went to work for comedy because i didn't know anything about comedy this was a new challenge this place was run by journalists and i mean hardcore writer journalists new york yeah. times Washington Post, these guys were like, they had great credentials. And they had been working on this thing for two years, or three years, whatever it was by then. And they loved it. And they were proud of it. And I walk in, the guy from comedy. <laughs> yeah. And they said, basically, who the hell are you? And what do you know about journalism? Because that's what we do here. So I had to, you know, I had to find my way through that. But I loved it. I got fascinated with it. We turned it into a channel about not just courtroom, but about crime and justice, the criminal justice system. I met lots of cops and detectives and judges and everybody who was a lawyer who didn't want to be a lawyer showed up at, at my door <laughs> because they wanted to be on television. Um, and when you think about it, it's crime stories are great stories. It's yeah. great storytelling. Yeah. I mean, I don't have to tell you how much of television these days, and I'm talking Netflix, Amazon, HBO, is either true crime or fictional crime stories. And mm -hmm. at that time, we were kind of like, it wasn't like they hadn't been done, but suddenly we're doing a lot of it. And people were starting to look at us saying, hey, this stuff is cool. We did a show called Forensic Files. Still NBC, watch it. Yeah. NBC put, put it on for, for a little while. It's been copied everywhere. We did a show called... Um, Psychic Detectives, mm -hmm. CBS did their show. That, ours wasn't fiction. Theirs was fiction. What do they call it? Something like Psychic Detectives. Sci-fi has all kinds of those now. Yeah, right. Sci-fi yeah. copied is left and right. Yeah. So I felt very proud of that. You know, we kind of we kind of pioneered this a little bit. And uh, Discovery Channel started their channel called uh, the Investigation Channel. And the guy who was head of that tried to hire me after I left. And he said, you know what, Art? He said... We watched what you did and whatever you did, then we did that because we, we knew what you guys were doing was successful and we knew it was great. And we just kept pulling pages out of your book and now they're successful. Yeah. <laughs> so that's how it works. There are so many good messages in your story. I mean, from not taking no for an answer, um, sticking with it, you believing in something, being passionate, like you were talking about in your sales pitch. Uh, you know, tightening your bootstraps, moving on from one position to the next. So many good stories here. And speaking of good stories, you got a book. 
that we've, right. you've, you've alluded to a couple of times, constant comedy. You've already talked about the, uh, the title, you know, how I started comedy central lost my sense of humor. So talk to us about like, what made you decide, like, I got to put this into my memoir, put this into to action and then um, tell our listeners where they can get a copy of it and a little bit about it. Okay, sure. Um, I didn't set out to write the book. I set out to write because remember I said, I liked writing. Yep. So my wife says, uh, and she's really my greatest asset <laughs> is my wife. She said, look, if you're going to, if you're going to really write, why don't you go take some classes? So I went to Sarah Lawrence writing Institute, which is on the East coast. Yeah. We were on the East coast at that point. And I took a course in, in memoir writing. And I wrote some memoirs about my childhood and stuff. And like anything else, if you get good teachers, they teach you a lot of stuff fast. You know, you get, you, you're a teacher, you know, mm -hmm. you can learn so much from a good teacher and my writing got better. And so one day I took in um, something I'd written about Comedy Central, about my experience there. And the class was like, wow, you did that? Well, that's really cool. That was a very funny piece. Um, why don't you write some more about that? I said, oh, really? You like that? So I said, okay. So I started writing stories about it. And then after I wrote a bunch of stories, I realized, you know, I could, write, I could make this like the whole yeah. uh, memoir because this is a really, this was my biggest adventure, biggest business adventure. Let me put it that way. Yeah. And it was a personal adventure as well. So I wrote the book as a memoir. So it's me talking about my experience starting this channel. And it's very honest. I learned in mem that when you're writing memoir, you got to turn yourself inside out. You know, you can't just tell the history because like that's boring. Yeah. You got to really say, this is how I felt. This is what happened. This is, this is who was screaming at me. This is who I was screaming back at. Yeah. You really got to, you really got to tell it. And it became, you know, it became evident that there was a really good story arc in it because as you say, I had to overcome all kinds of obstacles. It took forever. We had the merger. I ended up getting fired at the end for no, not because I did a bad job, but because they brought in new, new guys. And I said, at the time, I said, what do you have to do to keep a job in this business? How about I start the channel? You know, no, that didn't work. So I, I, I really laid it out there. I talked and a lot of people said, you know, the most interesting, the most heartfelt part of your book was when you were talking about getting fired because nobody talks about that. Yeah. People tend to be embarrassed about getting fired, but I talked about how it happened, how it felt moment to moment. And, uh, you know, that's what I wanted to do, write a really strong, important look at what working in television is really like. And that's how it came out. And I'm very proud of it. It's not all like getting fired. There's a lot of funny parts in it too. Yeah. Although it's not a laugh a minute book either. Um, but it, that's how it happened. And where can I get a copy of it? Amazon's the best place to, to go to get a copy of it. But it's okay. also sold online at Barnes and Noble too. Um, it's an electronic, you know, you get the ebook and get the hardcover. You yep. get the coming out with the paperback this month. And I just launched the audio book a few weeks ago. Oh, but that's good. I narrated it myself. Oh, that's so, even better. Yeah. So for your audience who's had a good time listening to me for the last hour and want seven more, they, there they you can, go. <laughs> they can listen to me read the book. Um, and it was really a fun experience narrating, uh, narrating the book. I enjoyed it. Um, yeah. Here's what it looks like, just because I always keep a copy handy. Yeah, I love how it looks. Yeah, definitely. And I'm, I know for a fact I'm going to be getting a copy of it because I love comedy. I love. I've read books about like the AOL Time Warner merger. I love hearing about all that kind of behind the scenes stuff. So, well, um, this is, this is up close and personal. Uh, and so you're going to enjoy that. Um, you can also get it at bookstores. Lots of bookstores carry it. And in, I just found out it's in a lot of libraries now too. Oh, wow. Um, wow. Yeah. Your legacy is all over the place. Television books. So Stop. yeah, we'll, uh, <laughs> we will definitely have this listed for our listeners. We'll have it listed on our website right. under the book recommendations. Uh, we'll have that. that listed there. So go check it out. And when all is said and done, like 50 years from now, when someone mentions Art Bell, what do you want them to say about you? That I was a great boss. That's what I want them to say. That I was a great boss. There we go. That's what I wanted to be. I wanted to be a great inspirational mentor to the people working for me. Yeah, that's awesome. 
if our audience would like to find out more information about you, where can you point them to? I have a website. It's called artbellwriter.com. And on the website, I'll tell you immediately how to get my book, my audio book, all that stuff. And also, um, I've got some other writing I've done there if they want to read other stuff. I, I'm writing short stories now. They're not on the website. I'm, some of them are published and some of them are waiting, hopefully, to get published. And I'm working on a novel. I might put a piece of that on the website. Um, so, yeah, the website's kind of a fun, fun place to visit if you want to learn more about me. My bio is there. Awesome. Yeah, well... I, I think this episode here has been an awesome message for an audience in terms of inspiring them. Uh, hopefully somebody here is listening to this and they've been told no on something and uh, you know, they, they, they don't quite give up on it yet. They still put, you know, put more effort into it and keep going. So um, final question for you before we leave. Okay. Why do you feel that humor is so important for us day in and day out? Because it is the lubrication of our conversation. Mm. It, it helps us communicate in non-threatening ways. And that is so important, especially these days. Yes. To keep our sense of humor and to keep the dialogue going. And you, know, like you see people communicating with no humor and you just go, man, they're like this. They're doing this. It's just mm -hmm. not working. Um, so. You know, you think of the politicians, for example, who had great sense of humor. JFK, Kennedy had a great sense of humor. Abraham Lincoln, one of my personal say. heroes, very funny. Yeah. Loved to tell funny stories. I mean, that guy went through the Civil War. I mean, talk about a depressed period. But humor was very important to the way he communicated yeah. uh, as well. So I think that's what we got to keep in mind about, about humor. I'll, I'll throw in one other thing. Stand-up comedians have done a great job of giving giving people, giving audiences, giving the world a look through their lens, their particular lens. And think about how much women in stand-up comedy have described what being a woman in America is really like yeah. in, a, in a way that men actually sit there and listen to because they weren't being lectured to, they weren't being told to, you know, what a, that they're, they're creeps or whatever. They just heard it straight. And I think that's very, that was a very important service, especially, you know, through the nineties when you had Sarah Silverman, you had some, you know, cold, you know, telling there's telling what it's like to be a woman and not pulling their punches. Mm -hmm. That's what's important about comedy. Yeah. I, my daughter and I, when we get around each other, it's humor 24 seven. And, but you know what it, it makes for, we just went on a, a road trip six hours one way and ended up being about eight hours back and uh we laughed the whole time didn't even turn the radio on but uh and humor played a large part in that yeah brings um, you together it does it really really does well sir i cannot thank you enough for taking time sure, uh, it's be been a pleasure here. absolutely um i look forward to getting a copy of the book checking it out reading it Good. um very excited actually to, to crack that open uh folks Check them out. We're going to have all the links in the episode description. Like I said, we're going to have the book listed under our book recommendations. That is going to conclude this episode of the Shadows Podcast. <laughs>